I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. May God open our hearts as Bruce comes and open this passage to us. One of the things that we've done in the last few years is we've uh, partnered with CCO, which is a campus ministry uh, to Anne Arundel uh, Community College. And uh, we partner through Isaac Vineyard, who serves both at our church and with CCO on the campus. And one of the things that I was able to do this past year was go to their uh, large conference and they center so much of the conference and really the ministry itself around this idea of faith and work. How does your faith impact how you see your work? How does what you believe influence your life and in particularly this area of what you do with your work? And um, so I, I found that amazing that these uh, young people were focusing at such an early age on those things that we, as we're older, uh, grapple with, and even some have crisis over when they get in their 40s and 50s about. Well, they produce a magazine about three or four times a year, and the magazine is called On Campus. It looks like this. Um, and what they do in the magazine is very much what they do in the conference, and that is they work through how faith has impacted different people's work. One of them is... Uh, uh, first job is to work with Tesla, which is that 
uh, car company that's making electric cars. Um, and he begins to talk about how his faith is impacted that I, I've put uh, dozens and dozens of these magazines out on that foyer. Just pick one up if you're interested, because I think we could learn from them about how faith impacts our work. Um, so if you want to, there's plenty of them out there. If we run out, I'm sure I can get more. But uh, thank you for considering that. Isaac began our service this morning by talking about this idea of change. That is, not change in our culture or change in, uh, in institutions or organizations, but, but change in us, change in ourselves. And is it possible to change? And if it is possible, how does someone really, really change? You know, for, for a lot of people, they, they tend to think change is impossible. You are who you are. You know, over time, different experiences, different beliefs, they've kind of got you to where you are and there's not really much anyone can do about it. Now, most people don't believe that pragmatically because we wouldn't sell the millions and millions of books on how to change if we really believe that no one could change. Literally, you can go to Amazon Books and look at all of the books on how to change. There are thousands of them. And they all have uh, one of three premises. And really, you can divide all change books into three categories. They all start with an M. You can have a mechanical uh, uh, change. That is, a, 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 a technique. I, you want to change? I have developed a, a particular way, three steps, four steps, five steps, that if you follow this technique and you really master this technique, you can change. They're very mechanical in that way. Uh, there's, a, there's another kind of, of book. It's, a, it's more of a magical uh, book. That is, if you could tap into the power, then you can change. Whatever the power is, if you can tap into that power, and, and sometimes the power is already in you, you just don't aren't aware of it yet, and so if I can make you aware of the power that already resides in you, you can make the changes that you want so much to see in your life. But there's, there's, a, there's another one, and, and that is this idea of morality change or morality books. And that is, here's the standard, whatever the standard is, by the culture, by, by the business community, by, by just ethics. And the bottom line of the book is just be good. Do this. Try hard. And when you fail, try harder. That's kind of the, how those kinds of books follow. And they have all the same premise to them. And that is, there's a potential that, uh, that, that is in you to be great, but not much actual. So you need my book. What I'm saying is that even though many, many of us from time to time get so frustrated, so discouraged by the lack of change we see in our lives, we're not as patient as we would like to be, we're, we're not as joyful as we want to be, we're not as, we're, 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 we're too critical, we're uh, too unforgiving, 
we, we just want to change in these areas of our lives. And we, because we don't see it, we get so frustrated. We come to the conclusion you can't change. But deep in our hearts, we don't believe that. We don't believe that because we tend to go to conferences. We tend to go to books, stores. We, we, we tend to try to change. John 15, and we're looking to this week and next week at John 15 because there, it, it, it's around this idea that you can change. In fact, John 15 doesn't just say change is possible. John 15 says for the Christian, change is inevitable. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to change. It's just part and parcel to being a follower of Jesus that you change. I think that's important because that's what we're looking at is that can we make real progress in this life? In areas that we particularly struggle with. And the answer is a resounding yes. It's even inevitable if you're a follower of Jesus. But the question is always how? How do you change? And so in order to begin to get to the how, I have to explain first why we can change. Why Christians of all people on the face of the planet can see real progress in their lives. I'm not saying that people who don't follow Jesus can't see real progress. But in these kinds of areas, only believers can make this kind of progress. Because of this. The key verse that sets the whole chapter off, that explains the whole chapter, that explains how change comes about and why we can change is verse verse 5. Of chapter 15. It's the one that's most quoted out of this chapter. I am the vine. And you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You hear the syllogism here. Do you hear the formula? If I Jesus abide in you. And you follower abide in me. You bear much fruit. It's inevitable. But if you don't bear, if you, if you don't abide in me, then you can do nothing. It doesn't mean you can't invent an artificial heart because an atheist did that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can't do good and noble and wonderful things from a human perspective in human history. But you cannot make Real progress in who you are unless Jesus is in you and you are in Jesus. That's ultimately the core of what Christianity teaches. That you can't make real progress in your life in patience and kindness and joy and honesty, integrity, in in becoming like Christ, unless he's in you and you are in him. This entire passage is built on that verse. Our relationship with Jesus is so incredibly intimate, so incredibly close, that it affects change in us. The closest illustration, the closest metaphor for that kind of a relationship that influences to change 
is the relationship of marriage. Now, I'm not saying this because I think everybody ought to get married. I can't control that, and it's not even my desire. But it is an illustration. That is, two people who truly are one influence the other. That is, the relationship is so close that their lives are impacted by the person that they have united themselves to. I understand it's imperfect, that illustration. That metaphor is not perfect because there are no perfect marriages. That might come as a surprise to you because you're always comparing your marriage to someone else's. But it's not what you know about their true marriage. But the way it's supposed to work is that one influences the other because of the intimacy of the relationship. And and John is drawing on that imagery here by quoting Jesus about, I am a vine, you're the branches. He's using an agricultural illustration to talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in relationship to this idea of change. And therefore, what he's saying is, is that if you don't see growth in your life in, in these areas, if you don't see what he's calling fruit, which is growth and change, then it's probably because you're not attached to the vine. You're not attached to Jesus. This is what Peter's trying to get out in, in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter says, God has granted to us his precious and most great promise so that through them, talking about these promises, we may become partakers of the divine nature. He's not saying that your nature becomes divine, but he's saying because Jesus is in you, you're in him, because there's such an intimate relationship between you and Jesus that your nature changes, that your nature changes. That's what the Bible is saying about Christianity, that it's not just simply a set of beliefs that we're going to adopt. Or simply a set of ethics that we're going to subscribe to. Or simply a cathartic, uh, mystical experience that we're going to have. All of those are part of Christianity, but they're not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is a changed heart. Because there's a new occupant of the heart. And theologians call this union with Christ. We do not walk around and say, how's your union with Christ going? It's odd. Even for those of us who've been in the church for a long time, to, to talk about your union, your relationship, your intimate closeness to Christ is not how we talk to one another. That's not the way in which we measure each other. How's your union going? And so we... It also wasn't so much the way they talked back then. And so he uses an agrarian idea of branches and vines and life and abiding and fruit to describe what he's talk, what theologians call this idea of a union with Christ. And that what he's saying is, is if you want real progress in areas that have shamed you, that have been making you miserable and everyone around you miserable then you have to have union with Christ. You have to be in union. And that's the core message of Christianity. 
I understand people hunt and peck parts of Christianity and think that I can be a Christian if I've, I just adopt Jesus' ethic. I can be a Christian if I, I just adopt uh, some of the truths that Jesus taught. Or I can be a Christian if I have this cathartic uh, experience that has really moved me. And Christianity says that those, those things become part of Christianity. They're not the essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is your union with Christ. And if you want to see real change in your life, you have to be in a union with Christ. And therefore, if, if we won't accept this part of the gospel, if we won't accept this part of Christianity, then ultimately we've accepted something. It just isn't Christianity. Either Christianity is right about how we change, or it ought to be taken out, burned, and thrown out in the trash heap of history as a fraud. Either we can change by being in union with Christ, because that's what it teaches, or if that doesn't happen, if that's not inevitable for followers of Jesus, then we ought to dump Christianity and see if there's another religion that works, because it doesn't. Unless union with Christ really does work in the believer's life, in your life, my life, our children's life, our friends' lives, our co-workers' lives, the person sitting next to you in the pew. If it doesn't work, then Christianity is a fraud. And we just ought to accept that it is. But if it's not a fraud, if this really is how people change, then why in the world are we trying all the other ways in addition Why are we buying the magical books, the moral books? Why are we buying all of these self-help tools when we have the one thing that ultimately changes us, our relationship with Christ? More importantly, even, even even if Christianity can't change you, then there is nothing left. You take the union of Christ out, there's nothing left in Christianity that can change you. Understand that. If if this isn't how we change, there's nothing in there that can change you. You can aspire all day long to be like Jesus. You can wear the bracelets. You can go to what Jesus would do, conferences. But that, my friend, will not bring lasting change in you. Only your union with Christ. Some of you have given up on yourself, I said. Let me give you one verse of hope. Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. We, you know what a promise box is? You, you used to be able to get them at Christian bookstores. They were in fancy little boxes. And typically, when you open them up, they're cards, and they have a promise in them from the scriptures, a a verse, maybe two. And you're encouraged to memorize it and pray through that verse. Almost always in promise boxes is John 15, 7. Taken way out of its context. If you abide in me and I in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. What does that do to Jesus? Think about it. 
if Jesus is obligated because I'm in him and he's in me because I have union with him because I'm a follower of Jesus, he has to do what I say. What does that make Jesus? A genie. Isn't that what a genie does? I grant you three wishes because you rub the bottle. Or maybe a Santa Claus Jesus. Sorry if I popped a, pu- a few bubbles. Where you sit on his knee and you say, Jesus, this is what I want. That's not Christianity. It's something. It might be moving. It might be a cathartic experience for you. But it's not Christianity. I'm sorry. But the other side of it, this is the encouraging part. You want patience? You want to grow in forgiveness and love and kindness and joy? Man, I wish we Christians could grow in joy. Sometimes we are the sourest people on the face of the planet. It's sad. Sometimes we're so critical. I don't see that anywhere in Jesus. That doesn't mean he didn't say hard things to hard people. But he never said them in ways that destroyed the person. We need to grow so much in there. But do you want to grow in there? And you're not growing in those ways? Verse 7 says, ask it. That you can ask. And you are guaranteed he's going to change you. If you abide in me and I abide in you, ask me for the change. You want change? I want you to change. This is the beauty. Our confession, Westminster Confession of Faith, says that there are three means of grace. The word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. And and one of the ways that we have so misunderstood how prayer is a sacrament. Sacraments are means by which grace comes. That's what we mean by uh, a sacrament or a means of grace. How does prayer change us? It's not by us trying to get God to change his will for us. It's about how we get God to change our will to be like his. Not my will be done, but yours. That's how prayer is a means of grace. It's not a long laundry list of all the things that you want to see. Aunt Susie, get better. Johnny, get good grades. You never have to worry about prayer in students. It always comes at grade time because they didn't study. And they're just hoping the Holy Spirit will intervene and give them information they never put in there. It's almost a miracle they're asking for. That's, that's, not, that's not how prayer is a means of grace. Prayer is a means of grace so that our will comes into line with His will. And of course He wants to give you what you ask then because it's what He wants for you. And so if you want to grow in patience and kindness and joy and self-control and honesty and so many other just ask. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to be more honest. He wants us to be more like Christ. And it will be done for you. That's what he says. Great, beautiful promise. Okay, if, if that's why we can change, secondly, Let me explain how we change. Because this is often confusing for us Christians. Because we we buy into all the theology and then we run as quick as we can to the opposite of what we believe. Because we see someone else who said, hey, I tried this technique and it worked. Now you ought to. Be like me. Isn't that the whole commercial of Nike? Be like Mike? 
Or, or maybe there, there's some kind of higher power that I've never tapped into. Tell me how to do that. If we can change because of our union with Christ, how can we change? He says it nine times. Often a writer in the first 11 verses, nine times this word is used. Nine. Uh, that's such a short time. That means something. That's not accidental. Abide. Abide, 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 abide. In case you forget, abide, 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 abide. What does abide mean? Abide means to depend on someone or something. It means to get your life from someone or something. When Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, you get your life from me. You see the entire world through my eyes. I know the world has a way of seeing the world, and I have a way of seeing the world. You can either see the world the way the world sees the world, or you can see the world the way I see the world. And if you abide in me, you have decided that you're going to look at the world through my eyes, the way I see things. And you're going to make your decisions in light of me and my will, not the world's or yours. The illustration, the branch, doesn't bring life to the vine. The vine brings life to the branch. And he gives us two ways in which we can abide. Two means by which we abide. First one is found in verse 7 and the second one is in verse 9. The first one is if my words abide in you. Some people read the Bible for information. Okay, great. That makes you an intellectual. Some people read the Bible for inspiration. Great. You're an inspired person. But neither of those make you a Christian. Either an intellectual or inspired. He's talking about something deeper, something more profound than simply reading the Bible so I can know more. Or so that I can feel more. He's talking about here for us that abiding is to draw life from the words. This is what David means when he says in in Psalm 19, God's words are sweeter than what? Honeycomb. Long before candy, they had honeycomb. And he says, because it was sweet, I ate it. That's what he's talking about, the words of God. He's talking about a spiritual digestion. You know how regular digestion works? You eat something good, it goes into your stomach, it begins to break down. The nutrients are moved into your body and eventually become your body. That's what he's saying about the words of of God, the words of Christ. Are you eating them so that they become the nutrients in your body and become your body? That's what he means by abiding, is that literally who you are is because of what you ate. Allowing Jesus' words to come in and shape you. I think that's incredibly important. You know, I I grew up, everybody have lots of dreams when they grow up. Some people want to be firemen, some people want to be astronauts. I just wanted to be adopted. 
I grew up with five brothers and sisters. I loved them to death. I just wanted to be adopted out of that family into another family. I would have taken almost anyone. That was just a dream of mine. Never heard until I was in my 20s that this idea of adoption into a family that is, that is a central tenet of what it means to be a Christian, to be adopted into the family of God. To a, to a, to a kid who was longing to be part of something else, to become part of something else. It's the part of the gospel that turned my world upside down. To know that I have family everywhere in the world. There's nowhere I can go in the world that I can't run into a brother or sister. That's why for, for, for a lot of people, they use the word, you're my brother, hey brother, hey sister. It means so little to them. I don't have to use the word to know you're my brothers and sisters. Some of you are my mothers and fathers. Just because you're older than I am, you're wiser, you've been on the block longer. And some of you are like my kids. That, that's eating the word and letting it become part of you. To where it changes your whole view of Christianity just through the doctrine of adoption. I think it's important that if we abide in his words, it means more than simply we're reading it. We're simply more than just thinking about it. That it's coming in and changing everything. That I recognize that my family is so so large and so different and diverse than I am. Think differently, live differently. And I can celebrate all of that diversity. Not because I need them all to be Calvinist. I'm glad that we have different stripes of Christians because there are parts of my theology that have holes in it. And some of them I don't even see. And so when I'm around a Christian that doesn't believe like I do, then that challenges me. Is it, is it cultural just because I've only known two churches my whole life? I grew up in the, in the Catholic church and I've been a Presbyterian since I became a Christian. And so for all intents and purposes, this is all I've ever known. And that creates holes. You want to know how I know it says holes? Watch us sing a song that has a beat to it. We don't know what to do. Even when they start to clap to give us a beat. We're over here. We might as well be armless. You'll see a couple of people in the crowd raise their hands. That's always warms my heart because it, it just tells me they know what to do with their arms. <laughs> Psalm says, raise your hands in worship. It always amazes me. I go give the benediction, and, I, and I've said this so often, that the way the benediction is to be received. It's to be given and to be received. And our bodies, our postures matter. Because it teaches us and teaches everyone around us that this word is for you. It is a good word. But for us Presbyterians, it teaches us that we can do something with these things. They're not just appendages. But secondly, in verse 9, he says, If my love abides in you, let my love in. We Christians, we struggle so much with love because we've defined it as a transaction. I'll love you the way you love me. 
If you don't love me the way I want to be loved, I will love you the way you love me. If you don't love me well, I won't love you well. He's your savior. I don't say that lightly like it's a title. Do you know what the greatest doctrine that came out of the 16th century? And you say, great, here's my history lesson. The greatest doctrine that came out of the 16th century was not the solas. Was not saved by Christ alone, in grace alone, by faith alone. Those were wonderful doctrines out of the 16th century, but that's not it. It's just how far you and I have left Eden. That we are in desperate need of a Savior to come and rescue us from ourselves. From our sin. Because that's what takes us to look to grace. Without our understanding of our need for grace, we're not even looking for it. And that's what shows us the depth of his love. How do we know that? What does he say in this chapter? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this. They lay down his life for us. He's not describing the military. He's not describing the Boy Scouts battalion. He's describing Christ. Because that's the only one who was willing to go to hell for you. That you might go to heaven. There's nobody on the battlefield who did that for you. There's nobody in the Boy Scouts who can do that for you. So don't read John 15, 13 as, a, as a, 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 an inspiration to, to give your life up for your buddies. It's too small. Too small. It's about a Savior who came and loved you and that while you were still his enemy, he died for you. He went to hell for you. He was willing to take the full wrath of God for you in your place so that you could receive the blessings of grace so that you might know his love. You see what he's saying to you? The branch doesn't enhance the vine. The vine gives life to the branch. You are as loved now as you will ever be loved. I was using, I was uh, teaching at a uh, C.S. Lewis Institute with a bunch of folks that don't go to EP. And, and I was sharing this whole idea that, do you understand that right now you're as loved as you will ever be? There's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to increase his love for you or decrease his love for you. And if somebody said, because they hadn't been part of our church, well, that means I can live any old way I want because he's just going to love me. I said, Paul already answered that for you. In Romans chapter 6, he said, may, ne- may it never be. Not because he commands it never be, because if you really understand what Christ has done for you, then the last thing you want to do is to trample that love. The last thing you want to do. We can abide in that love. God's love for you does not grow. It does not diminish. It's as much as it is because it had nothing to do with you. It had to do everything with his son. He loves you as he loves his son. Then last, I have to explain why we must change. We, 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 we can change because of our union. How we change is by abiding. But we must change. Look at verse 2. I can't leave this 
opening part with this warning without taking you back to it. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. We need to be really, really careful here. Fruit on the branch does not give life to the branch. Fruit on the branch is proof that there's life in the branch that has come from the vine. You want to be less selfish? So do I. You want to be less worried? So do I. You want to be less critical? So do I. You want to be more patient? So do I. You want to be more kind? So do I. You want more joy? So do I. You want to be more forgiving? So do I. You want real progress? That's fruit. It comes from your union with Christ and as you abide in him and he abides in you. But what do you do when you're not seeing it? What do you do as a Christian when you're not seeing fruit? You're not growing in kindness and joy and patience. You're not, you're not, you're you're not more forgiving. You're, you're less forgiving. Well, one conclusion according to verse two is that you're not attached to the vine. You don't have union with Christ. I know that's hard to hear because it's hard to say. Because I don't know your heart. And I can't see into your heart to see if you have union with Christ. If the Holy Spirit has dwelt there. But you can. By examining your fruit. Fruit is inevitable for a believer. Now, Having no fruit doesn't necessarily mean you're you're not united. It just might simply mean you're going through a rough patch. There are seasons. Winter is a season. But what happens when winter really comes? All the branches are bare for a time because spring is a season. And then all the branches that are alive bear fruit. Eventually, all the branches that are abiding bear fruit. You cannot assume you're in Christ because you're sitting in a pew. You can't assume that you have union with Christ simply because you're a member of EP. If it has been a long time since you have seen progress in your life, if it's a long time since you've seen any kind of fruit in your life, one reason according to verse 2, is simply you're in a rough patch. You're in the season in which you're dormant. And that happens to all of us. That's not unique to, to, to people who just have rough patches in life. Everyone goes through seasons like that. But if that season is lasting year in and year out, then the other conclusion is there's no life in you. And I say that with all the, the warmness and hope I have. I'm not saying that because I want to divide this room into, into those that have life and those that don't. Because we can't do that. In fact, we're warned not to do that. But I can't get out of this passage without re- you recognizing that some of us are in a rough patch right now. And they need us to come alongside and encourage them. 
pray for them because that also prayer in verse seven also works uh, for people, you know, that is, you, you want to see the change. You want to see the fruit in their lives. Don't leave a track on the toilet for them. Pray. Because God wants that change, too. I don't want you to panic because you're not seeing fruit. I also don't want you to rededicate yourself because you're not seeing fruit. I just want you to abide when you don't see fruit. I think that's important that we go back and say, am I, am I abiding? Do I really not just believe that Jesus died on the cross? Am I eating his words? Am I constantly going through the spiritual digestion of his words becoming life to me? Are they sweet honeycomb? And then am I abiding in his incredible forgiving love? Am I operating out of that kind of love? Don't panic if it's not. Don't rededicate. That's just making it more about you. Abide. Abide. Life comes from the vine into you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these lovely, lovely people whom you love who you are abiding in many of. And others, they've been in a long season. I pray by verse 7 that you might bring fruit, that they would abide in your word and they would abide in your love. I would abide in your word. I would abide in your love. That we might see more fruit in our lives. And I pray for anybody in the room who, Father... It's not just been a long season, it's been never. They cannot remember the time where they bore any fruit. And so I pray that you come into their life and you give them new life through your spirit. And they learn to begin to abide. They eat your words as if it was life, because it is. And they eat and understand and live out of your love. Because that's the only place that brings life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.